and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Jude Rogers. It's been two weeks since the publication of the controversial report by the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, and unsurprisingly, criticisms of the government keep coming. This week, one commissioner spoke anonymously to the Observer, accusing Number 10 of refusing to give the working group any autonomy and also bending their findings to fit a more palatable political narrative. The government have also been accused of rewriting significant sections of the report. Health professionals, business leaders, crime experts and people from many other sections of society have continued to condemn their actions, as well as prominent academics. One of these is Professor Kinde Andrews, founder of the first Black Studies degree programme in Europe at Birmingham City University. You may have seen him on Good Morning Britain. He's a regular pundit, educating the likes of Piers Morgan and Toby Young, or heard about him debating the psychosis of whiteness with Russell Brand. He's written books about black supplementary schools and black radicalism. And in February, Penguin published his latest book, The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. It argues that the Enlightenment was founded not on the revolutions of science, industry and politics, but on genocide, slavery and colonialism, and decries the solutions of the white left for not going far enough. Thanks so much for joining us on the Bunker podcast today, Kehinde. Oh, happy to be here. Let's begin with the latest revelations about the UK race report. What did you think about what the anonymous commissioner said? Well, that's not really a surprise. I mean, I think from the day one, most people understood that this wasn't a genuine attempt to try and understand racism or further the cause of anti-racism. I think people really understood this was a political game. It was part of the culture wars the government's been engaged in. If you look at the people they selected to, to run the report, uh, Tony Sewell, who's the, the chair, has a long history of denying institutional racism and making quite quite offensive cultural arguments about how we make change. And so this report was always kind of dark. Was, was, the whole purpose of this report was to come to this conclusion. So if, if the government really did interfere in this way, uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all because that was that was what this was about. What were the parts of the report that shocked you the most? Uh, well, I mean, I can't say it really shocked me because this was, again, what most of us were expecting when it was announced. And a lot of the criticism started long before it. We were organising when we knew the date was coming out because we knew exactly what it was going to say. So there's nothing really surprising in terms of the findings. I think what is surprising is just how bad it is. I mean, it is spectacularly awful in terms of its misuse of data, its misuse of experts. I mean, half the people they've, they've said, they've thanked have come out and said, please, please don't, don't put me anywhere near this. I mean, it's, I, I was surprised at just how bad it is. And in terms of some of the language, the language around slavery, the suggestion that that was somehow a, a, a positive thing for, for my ancestors, didn't, that, that, that level of, um, that level of, I don't even know what you would call that, just, just disrespect would probably be the word. Um, and in some of the, the recommendations, one of the recommendations literally says that they need, we need more research into the problems of black people, basically. It's like one of the, one of the recommendations basically says we need to research uh, why some cultures uh, produce better outcomes than others. And in the 21st century, I would have thought we were long, long past those kind of ideas. Were there any recommendations that you did support? Um, you know, it recommends extended school days, better career advice in disadvantaged areas, the end of the reductive BAME acronym. Well, I think any of the, there's a couple where you could say definitely BAME. And I'm not really a big fan of extending a school day. I think, again, if you actually look at what that, what does that really mean? What you're saying is that some kids need more school. 
So really, the problem isn't the school, the problem is the kids. And if you look at most of the, the arguments in this report, it really is those kind of cultural arguments. And so yeah, any, anything that says the problem is the, the, the parents or the problem is the children kind of misses the point. But if you deny institutional racism exists, then that is kind of where you end up. And if things like BAME, I mean, yeah, look, I would definitely say we should get rid of BAME. I would doubt that we have the same reasons. So even when there are some recommendations, I could kind of say, yeah, maybe the broader theme of this and most of the recommendations are deeply cultural. They're also about things like trust. There's a big thing about trust, building trust. For example, one of the recommendations says we need the, there needs to be more trust built with the police. No, the problem isn't we don't trust the police. The problem is the police. And actually, there should be recommendations. Should we say what do the police? How do the police get their house in order uh, before communities can even discuss the things like trust? So, so no, I don't really agree with many of the recommendations at all. What shocks you most about our cabinet's attitudes towards racism? You know, I've re- read you writing about the illusion of this diverse cabinet before. You know, with Rishi Sunak and Priti Patel in major positions. I know you've been saying nothing shocks you, but. I'm intrigued to know what does. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think once you understand this, it is, it is rare. So it can be quite shocking to see. I mean, it should shock us. I mean, I, I say I'm not shocked, but again, I don't, not what shocks me really, to be honest. Um, but we should shock us. I mean, it should shock us that there's been clear evidence of racism. You have the biggest protests in the history of the country. There's so much pressure and so, and that even the, dis, the discussion around race changed so fundamentally. It should shock us that the government basically put together a report which which was to deny the issue which was to push it all back um it should shock us but it's not unfortunately that's just what they've been doing um it should shock us that we have the most diverse cabinet in the history of the co- of the country and it is definitely the most racist government in my li- in my li- in my lifetime certainly those things should shock us i guess but if we put them in their context we'll understand that actually it's not really that surprising Right, that, that one of there's been a number of problems that we've had when we've approached the issue of race, and the big one is actually that runs through this report generally, and not just this report. It's the same failing with the McPherson report. It's the same failing with every report we've had ever really on this issue, is that we've conflated individual prejudice with with structural racism, and all the focus has been on how do we reduce individual prejudice, legislation wise, and the idea is well if you have more diversity than more black and brown people, it's going to mean you're going to have less individual prejudice. This is going to be a good thing. And I think this, finally, one of the good things about this report is it's showing that that's a dead end. That gets you to where you are now, where, yes, we've got diversity, but we should always have realized that diversity doesn't mean that racism ends. The history of empire has, is, is filled, literally filled. The British Empire could not have run without countless black and brown people who were um, administering the colonies and the British, if you actually look at who administered the British Empire, it's incredibly diverse, right? This is not a new thing at all. So that's why I'm saying I'm not surprised. It should surprise us, but really, if we look at the history of things, it should shock us. I guess the, the, the outcome of that should shock us, but it shouldn't really surprise us once we understand the nature of the, the system we're dealing with. So let's turn to your book. Um, you've already brought up the Black Lives Matter marches last year, and your foreword addresses the moment of optimism around them but also how we should treat it with caution. Of course, there was much talk of token gestures last year as well, you know, the posting of black squares on Instagram and social media, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you think the movement stands now? I think the movement stands now pretty much where it stood before, honestly. I mean, I think, again, you probably already guessed I don't tend to get carried away with a lot of the things which happened. And I, you know, as much as last summer was different in terms of scale certainly the mainstream conversation was different 
in terms of books, I mean, you couldn't get, you tried to order a, a black book on Amazon, it was almost impossible. So there was something shifted in the, the conversation. But that, if we're honest, that hasn't really translated. Certainly the government level has probably got the opposite way. Um, but at the, the question is, to what extent does that, when we talk about racism, does that translate into actually addressing any of the issues? If I'm honest, I don't think it has. Really, I know there's very little evidence that it has. And if anything, there has been a backlash, like a quite a strong backlash. So and actually, this government report is part of that backlash. We need to defend statues. We need to defend this. We need to we need to defend the history. We need to defend the Enlightenment. And actually, if you look at where the public debate is now, it's probably worse than it was before because there's been such a strong backlash against it. What impact do you think the Black Lives Matter marches will have for the younger generation, especially as there has been, as you say, um, more books coming out on the subject and more debate. You know, you've worked at a university yourself for over a decade. I wonder if you've seen attitudes change in the students themselves and whether the next generation will be the ones taking on these issues and making making real change. I mean, I think certainly with the one thing that gives me hope here is the young people, and it has been young people really leading the struggle, uh, young people pushing the marches. If you look at your know, podcast content and stuff we're talking about and those debates, certainly... This, the younger generation has been leading that. I think it's important to put it in historical context because Britain has had large-scale protests around race before, and actually bigger-scale protests. If you think about the urban rebellions in the 80s, if you think about something like the the National Black People's Day of Action, which was 81, it didn't have as many people in it, but it was a culmination of you know, 10, 20 different organisations, like months of work went into it. You know, the, black, like the, black, the British Black Power Movement was... 20 years long and it really did make a lot of changes and actually a lot of the changes that we have now i have my job now largely because of that and did make this kind of legislative societal change that we have when we're looking at this generation in some ways you're just going back to what was lacking because there's been a lack if you think of the last 40 years there's been a decline in that in those kind of movements and we're going back to a moment before that we had before when people were really critical and wanting to see change the question now is and i think which is where my real optimism comes, is that we've seen the result of the kind of reforms, change the legislation, get more access to university, uh, get more diversity in, in, in the government. We've seen, we've seen the limits of that. And so hopefully this generation will be demanding much more serious structural changes. Um, and that's where the hope, I think, comes from. You write in the book very powerfully about colonial nostalgia, which um, Britain is suffering from badly, you write, and you know I absolutely agree. I have to ask you about your comments um, in the last week on CNN about Prince Philip. You said, um, and I quote, he was a throwback to old school racism. Painting him as a benign, cuddly uncle of the nation is simply untrue. Like it or not, though, Middle England does have a lot of affection for Philip, um, does it help to bring them along if we reduce him to he was just a racist? Um, well, I mean, he was just a racist. I mean, I don't know, was he just a racist? <laughs> he was certainly racist. I don't. I think that it's interesting how we sanitise figures like Prince Philip. I mean, he essentially didn't speak in public for a long time because he couldn't be trusted, right? I mean, this is the kind of person we're talking about. And when we think about the royal family more generally, why would we be surprised that they have these deeply racist attitudes given, I mean, just given what the royal family is I think the question? Yeah, I mean the question you asked there is you want to bring them along. Um, I, I guess my political project is slightly different. Where uh, bringing along Middle England uh, isn't 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 the priority. I don't think <laughs> it was very noticeable that you were one of the few British voices daring to uh, 
say uh, something that uh, has been heard in a lot of other places um, uh, previously. I'm also interested in you writing about the need to decolonise um, British education. Um, in Wales, where I live, the teaching of black and ethnic minority history has been made mandatory in the new Welsh curriculum, which is starting to roll out across the country. But as there is freedom in the way that curriculum can be taught school to school, some people are obviously worried that this might be ignored. I wanted to ask you, what would that decolonisation of education entail, do you think? You know, how would you like it to work? Um, and also, how do you explain it to people in whiter areas of the country? That How is a benefit to the whole country? Yeah, so I think I think sometimes decolonisation might be the wrong term. No, no, I think it is the wrong term. I think that when we think about something like decolonisation, you know, that's a process, that's a revolutionary process that it's basically impossible to decolonise a curriculum because the curriculum is the function of a broader system. The, the reason the curriculum is so Eurocentric and white is because that's how the society works, right? And it, it does a particular thing. It maintains a particular status quo. It keeps this colonial nostalgia. Right? So for instance, the reason that so many people love the, the, the monarchy and the empire is simply because they don't understand what it is. Like I think if you actually, people we actually taught what this the British empire was and taught what the monarchy represents, I think most people would probably go, yeah, that's probably not great. We should probably distance ourselves from it. So the purpose of the school system is to is to reproduce the status quo. One of the ways to make calls to change the curriculum more mainstream is just to call it what it is. It's, this is about diversification. This is about diversifying the curriculum, which and people like diversity, right? I think that is a, that's, that's essentially what we're really doing, and I think that's a, a good thing to do. I think, from my perspective anyway, Changing the curriculum is actually more about why people were mainstream than it is about us. So I'm in, I grew up in a black radical tradition where we don't rely on the schools. I don't rely on the schools to teach my kids nothing. Like, honestly, if I want to teach my kids black history, I'm going to teach them black history. And I think as a community, we've had that approach. And that is the approach that actually I would advocate for, for black people. Like, we should never, never rely on the state to teach your kids anything. There's things that we need to do for ourselves. But in terms of how does Britain understand itself? This is why it's such an important thing to teach things like empire, to teach things like race, to teach things like nation properly, because the nation doesn't understand itself. I mean, we just had a vote for Brexit, which if we were honest, if we, it's not the only issue, if the British public generally understood the history of empire, why Britain became great in the first place, the fact that Britain was only ever great when it was... Um, uh, an empire where the sun never sets. The Britain does not, as does not, has not, and never well, has previously, but not as this great economy, never stood alone. It's always needed to have be part of an economic block, etc. We understood all that. Wouldn't have voted for Brexit. Like this is this is really important. So actually, this this diversification of the curriculum is far more important for white people than it is than it is for us because we're going to teach our kids what they need to know anyway. I find that really interesting in the book when you were talking about the alternative spaces where you learned about black history when you were young, you know, how the places where black communities could thrive, like bookshops and Saturday schools, and lots of which have now gone. What are the alternatives to that these days? Are they, you know, forums like Make It Plain, which you run, or other things? Um, yeah, so I mean, that's, that uh, for me is one of the, the problems that we have at the minute is generally there has been, and again, this is why, I, as much as I don't want to say I'm against changing the school curriculum. I think it's important. You should change the school curriculum or, you know, we should have more black professors or we should change the university. This, these are important things to do. But honestly, if I'm saying from a black perspective, what's more important, it is actually more important to have the alternate spaces. And those alternative spaces during the British Power Movement were, were everywhere. We had, you know, we couldn't, and the reason they had to be everywhere is because 
we understood we couldn't rely on the state, right? So the Black Supplementary School Movement, which is 50-odd year history uh, and literally is uh, black parents, um, after they find out what's happening to kids in the school, just say, look, we, we can't rely on the school, so we're just going to organize in our homes, yeah, wherever we've got space, on uh, a Saturday, what often called Saturday schools. And they said, look, we're going to take it into our own hands. And even, and well, the Sewell Report would tell us has, has kind of lifted the lid for the mainstream that there are really conservative, black, there's lots of differences in black communities. There's really conservative black people and there's really radical black people. There's a kind of range. And there's always been these conservative black people who uh, like Sewell, but even, even Sewell and people like that would have said at this time, this, you can't rely on the schools because the schools were so openly, obviously racist. And so all of us together, said that we've got to build these, these different spaces where we can have education, things like bookshops, um, things like organization. And the, the biggest mistake that we made was we put far too much faith in the system to, to teach our kids, uh, to teach ourselves generally, right? So, you know, we said, how can we reform the schools? Let's change the schools. Let's get into the schools, et cetera. And we've, we've lost, not lost all of them, but we really have declined in those other spaces. Um, so that's one of the things which I'm definitely, but most of the things I try to do is to try and say, well, let's put those spaces back. So we do have, we started the Harambe organization, the Black Unity in Birmingham, which has the Garvey Education Center, which will open when COVID is over. We started a website, Make It Plain. We're supporting the idea of Saturday schools. Uh, there's long been arguments to say you should have black education and black, black led schools, not, not a segregated school, but a black led school to say, let's, let's, this is what, and I think this is for this younger generation understanding that. We should really be focusing on trying to build the alternative spaces because, you know, the institutions are what the institutions are fundamentally. I want to ask you about your TV appearances, too. Um, you're on TV a lot. How do you steal yourself as spats on screen with the likes of Piers Morgan, Toby Young, Nigel Farage? You know, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> You've um, <laughs> you debated whether the English flag is racist with Nigel Farage, you know. Um, but yeah, I, you know, just, just saying that sentence, I'm just, you know, in... in absolute terror um what do you say to the criticism though that by engaging with these deliberately provocative characters you're helping to sustain their culture war well the culture war isn't going to happen whether i'm there or not i mean i think this is this is just important the culture wars is such an important part of the response to anti-racist protests i mean this has just happened whether i go on tv or not i don't think i'm that important that me not going on is going to make the slightest bit of difference and so the question which i always ask myself is is there something is there something useful to this and what's really is actually about good morning britain which i didn't i never realized i never i never watch it when i'm on it that's how much i don't watch it and i'll go on there and that's what i'm most known for and literally random black people walk down the street and say oh go on prof i saw you on uh, good morning britain keep giving them hell and what's really clear is that again we don't i would it would i would love to have our own alternate spaces where we could have the exposure and reach people and have these and this is really what is one of the things that i'm trying to do alongside the academic stuff but the reality is we don't have those right we have these spaces where when we engage people watch and there's so i understand that a big part of the reason no the reason i get invited onto these shows is to be the bad black guy who's radical you know come on and say stuff and cause spectacle and get end up in the daily mail and all that which happens right but again my audience is never i'm never worried about that audience there's a secondary audience or not even secondary primary for me audience who is people watching that? Who is online? Online is loads of spaces on there. They get caught up and they get shared. You get discussions. I have to say, Good Morning Britain, I've got more followers and more reach. Uh, the messages have reached more people through that through that one mechanism than literally anything else. And it's a shame it has to be done that way, but that is unfortunately the way that it has to be done. 
And um, and give it credit, actually. If you actually think about, I was having a conversation with an American podcaster where the media landscape is really, in America, it's properly fragmented to like really, really right wing and it's just right wing and really, really left wing and it's just left wing and there's not much in between. And here, what we generally have is a really placid middle where they barely ever discuss race at all. I mean, what show discusses race more than Good Morning Britain and P.S. Morgan? They discuss it all the time. I mean, it might discuss it in ways which are kind of banal and ridiculous, but at least at least it's being discussed. And these are the conversations that people are having on a day-to-day basis. And actually, people do generally appreciate having having somebody in that arena uh, battling back. So, yeah, I, I, I always think, is it useful? I think it is. And the other thing I always go into these shows is, have I got something interesting to say about this? I don't really say what I just say, no. If I'm trying to think about some of the things which I've been able to put into the conversation on Good Morning Britain, psychosis of whiteness, um, I can't, I wrote for the Guardian. The Guardian would never let me put psychosis of whiteness in anything. Every time I put it in, they cut it out. It's that kind of liberal way of not really talking about things. Whereas Good Morning Britain, you can literally say whatever. You can put out ideas like psychosis of whiteness, that the British Empire is worse than the Nazis, and it gets out there and then hopefully impacts the debate. So I actually think it's quite useful. So it's a good platform on which to allow yourself to make statements that, uh, yeah, the, the, the liberal press would think more provocative. That's interesting. Finally, I wanted to ask you about the question of how to make redress for how Britain has treated its ethnic minorities and former colonial citizens. It's obviously a huge one, a huge question. In your book, you argue that the West could neither account nor afford the reparations it owes the rest of the world, really. But that some countries built on slavery have honoured debts to the descendants of enslaved people, in some way anyway. Like in New Zealand, you write, where the government paid the Maoris for historic abuses, back as far as 1863, or in Germany, where over $90 billion, I think it was, was um, paid to Jewish victims of the Holocaust. What do you think would be useful steps for Britain to take? Yeah, so I think certainly the reason I put those precedents out there is I think the idea that you would pay reparations for wrongdoing are really quite well established, actually, in, in international law. So some of, the, some of the arguments that, you know, gosh, why are we doing this? I mean, it's just, they're, they're just bad arguments. There's really no argument against reparations if you think about historical precedents for paying for wrongdoing. And then the difference with slavery to all of those would be just unpaid labor. I mean, literally, you're talking about hundreds of years of unpaid labor. And when, you know, the British system, the, the British, just, just the British system, system alone was so profitable when they abolished uh, slavery, they had to, in order to induce the abolishment of slavery, they had to pay the biggest payment the government's ever really paid um, in history, right? The, the 20 million pounds in those terms, but 5% of GDP, which is like 100 billion pounds today, was paid out to uh, the slave owners in, in terms of compensation, plus the enslaved had to work for four years for 75% of their time as slaves. So it was, they even paid for their own freedom. When you add it up, this is, this is a crazy amount of reparations went to slave owning. So there really is no argument, real argument against reparations. The problem is, and this is the problem, is the practicality of it. So there are a number of, uh, there are a number of calls for reparations. CARICOM countries, the Caribbean community, currently have reparations demands on countries, on European countries, and they are asking for debt relief. They are asking for um, money, obviously, uh, educational repair. There's organisations in the UK. There's a Stop the Mangamizi March every every year. There's a PARCO, the European Coalition for Reparations. African countries have asked for reparations. I think this is important that slavery literally destroyed the economy of Africa, and Africa has never really recovered from it. Um, so there's 
Americans, African Americans have many, 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 many different approaches to asking for slavery. So there definitely is precedent. There definitely is models of which to do it. The worst way to do it would be to pay people. I don't need individually any reparations. This would, this would be the worst way. The If you think about how reparations should work, it would be a, a transfer of wealth to the black communities in the UK, uh, transfer of wealth to Caribbean communities, transfer of wealth to uh, African, African countries as well. But I, I support the argument for reparations, but I think that once you actually track the amount of reparations we're talking about, I, I don't think it's really practical because just well, just for the states, they reckon the last calculation was between 4.9 and $15 trillion, I think. I think for yeah. Caribbean, there's been somewhere in the tr- trillions for just for Britain. And those are, those are low estimates. Those are like uh, unpaid labor, uh, pain and suffering. They don't account for the fact that just the amount of, you couldn't really have had any of the wealth that we have without slavery. The Atlantic system is so important to everything else that follows, the way the money is literally everywhere. To transfer the amount of wealth we're talking about, I think would actually, to do it properly, would destroy would destroy Western capitalism. And not just that, if you actually, this is the argument I make in the book, is that the logic of white supremacy hasn't changed. It's still there, right? So we don't have slavery, we don't have colon, direct colonialism anymore. But if you actually look at the world, white at the top, black at the bottom, everyone else in between, the exploitation of African resources, the exploitation of Asian labor, etc. White supremacy is as important to the current economy as it ever has been. So even if it was possible to equalize and to transfer the wealth, the fact that Africa was at the same level of, of Europe, that would in itself destroy capitalism because Europe actually needs Africa to be poor. So reparations literally no matter what you look at it reparations destroys the economic system so i'm just going to say it's probably not going to happen it's a perfect discussion to go down because you actually end up saying what we really need is a revolution well that's quite a note to end on um thank you so much for coming on the podcast kahindi no happy to always happy to discuss Um, thanks for listening as well everyone else remember there's a new bunker every day from monday to thursday and a new Saturday edition too. We're moving Fridays so it doesn't clash with our sibling show, Oh God, What Now? Don't forget to follow us, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can support the show on Patreon too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. And we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Jude Rogers. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Safranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>